Welcome to the Mini Culture Podcast, a show that explores the untold stories of Minnesota's past and present. I'm your host, John Gebertatios. In the late 1880s, a young journalist named Eva Valesh went undercover in Minneapolis to report on the lives of working women for the St. Paul Globe. Each week, she took a risk to expose the horrible conditions in which these women worked. In today's episode, KFAI's Ben Heath explores Valesh's work and the crucial role of investigative journalism on the labor movement of the late 19th century. Eva Valesh was only 22 in 1888 when she started her columns as Eva Gay in the St. Paul Globe. A lot of the early reporting on her keeps talking about her as a young girl, as this comet streaking across the sky. This is Dr. Elizabeth Pfau, professor of history and department chair at Wayne State University in Detroit. As Dr. Pfau described it, Eva Valesh arrived on the Globe's pages in 1888 like a fireball. Each week, Eva would go undercover and investigate how women fared in various workplaces open to them. The writing is snappy, some might even say sassy. With compassion and humor, she gave women workers a voice. Her career with the Globe was brief, lasting only a few years, but her fiery writing would shine a bright light on workers in the late 19th century. This is the story of Eva MacDonald Valesh and the Eva Gay columns. Eva Valesh was born Mary Eva MacDonald in 1866. Her parents, John MacDonald and Eleanor Lane, moved the family from Maine to Minneapolis when Eva was young. Her father was in the trades and interested in labor politics. John MacDonald uh, seems to have been involved in the Knights of Labor and in local labor politics. The Knights of Labor begin as a secret organization of white men in the 1870s and they're interrupted for a while and then reconstitute themselves in, I think, 1878. They both invite in, as members, African Americans and women. The Knights of Labor was an international labor federation that was active in the latter part of the 19th century. Their membership numbers peaked in 1886 at about 800,000. It functioned largely as a labor union, and it was open to workers across trades and skills. Eva's father, John MacDonald, was an active member and he knew labor supporters in journalism. And John McDonald had a number of connections, including the owners of presses and newspapers. Eva tags along, but also gets involved in various different youth nights of labor activities. Eva was even involved in a labor theater group. So it's a very lively um, environment in which to grow up. Newspapers in the 1880s relied on subscriptions or per-copy sales and needed to appeal to a wide range of readers, including working people. Labor unions had a huge social component, and Minneapolis and St. Paul both had very active labor communities. John McDonald is asked by John Swift, who's the editor of the St. Paul Globe, if his daughter, who by then is actually working as a printer, if she would be interested in writing stories for the newspaper. Eva immediately accepted. This is an excerpt from the first Eva Gay column, March 25, 1888, Among Girls Who Toil. I propose to carry Globe readers with me through a series of articles and show the life, home life, and shop life of the working girls and women of Minneapolis. Every morning, the streetcars and thoroughfares of the city are thronged with busy crowds of breadwinners. Even a careless observer will note that a large proportion of the crowd are women, some of them comfortably dressed, 
showing in their faces no signs of hardship. Others hurrying along, their scanty dress, stooping shoulders, and pale faces showing that for them, the struggle for a living is a hard fight. Eva was not alone in her efforts. She was one of a growing number of American women in journalism. So we start in 1840 with Margaret Fuller. Here's Brooke Kroger, professor and author of a number of books on the history of journalism. Kroger places Margaret Fuller as one of the earliest American women journalists. She's a genius. She's a scholar. She's an incredible networker. She decides she's going to cover the city, especially the, the underclasses. And she's particularly interested in women prostitutes, things like that. Women were able to ride outside the confines of the so-called women's realms of homemaking, family, and material goods by writing for alternative publications, like the abolitionist press. Since women were deeply involved with that movement, it was an important step towards emerging women's suffrage. By the latter half of the 19th century, women were able to write for major newspapers as travel correspondents. So that's where we see this start. In the 1880s comes a woman who would define the archetype of stunt girl reporter, Nellie Bly. While she didn't invent sensational investigative journalism, she made the technique a popular and lucrative niche. Nellie is the first we know about who started doing this undercover work. Nellie Bly caused a sensation when she checked herself in, undercover, as a patient at a notorious mental asylum, and wrote a lengthy expose. So she just immediately becomes a celebrity. She's looking into the baby buying trade. She's seeing what's happening with prison matrons if a woman gets arrested. She's going to centers for women who are down on their luck or who are alcoholic, exposing mesmerists. I mean, just all sorts of things, week after week after week after week. In addition to being published in the widely read New York world, Bly's exposés were published in book form. As Eva Valesh became Eva Gay, writers across the country took this formula and wrote their own sensational spins on it, usually under a nom de plume. And not just Eva, but in Chicago, Nell Nelson. In uh, Colorado, there was Polly Pry. It was great for business. People were fascinated by this you-can-believe-me character who was telling you things that she had experienced. According to Dr. Fow, Eva wanted people to understand the lives and conditions of working women by asking these fundamental questions. Who are the women workers? What are the conditions of women workers? What do they get paid? What is their life like beyond the workplace? What are relations like in the workplace for women? One must understand this is in a wider society in which women were seen to be subordinate, lesser, and having little to no political rights. Most of the industries Eva investigated were in downtown Minneapolis, near the river. Here she is describing the women in a garment factory. Standing near the elevator door, listening to and watching the busy scene before me, I found myself breathing an atmosphere whose distinguishing characteristics were a smell of new cloth, dust, heat, and sewer gas. It was stifling. There was a row of large windows along two sides of the room. Noticing several girls with bandaged heads and complaining of headache, I asked why they didn't open the windows and get some fresh air. One said, We can't stand it to have opened the windows in this weather. We get such colds and rheumatiz from the draft. Dr. Fow tells us about Eva and John Swift, the editor of the St. Paul Globe. 
John Swift hires her to go as an undercover reporter to the various different workshops in the city to cover what was by then a, a kind of new phenomena, which is a growing number of single women workers in a city. A general inquiry showed that the majority of the girls had to support themselves, paying from $2 to $3 a week for board and lodging, having, of course, to make what was left after that due for dress and other expenses. Typical wages Eva encounters range from 3 to $7 a week. $3 in 1888 would be about $95 a week today. That's about $1.50 an hour in 2022. Eva's involvement with the Knights of Labor gave her a strong understanding of labor and politics. By writing about the lives of women workers, Eva was not only telling stories and selling papers, she was promoting the political interests of organized labor in a popular and accessible way. Labor journalism and and this kind of intensive investigation of women, or just in general of workers, um, was one of the ways in which labor politics could connect beyond its small ranks could make it clear that there were political stakes to this kind of economy that could talk about the role of the workers in that economy, but also sort of see them as part of a whole. April 1st, 1888, The Toiling Women. I brushed off the dust and went over to Bemis Brothers on 3rd Avenue near 3rd Street. They don't seem to care for visitors. No hands wanted is a sign near the entrance door. A little farther on, at the foot of the stairs, is the sign, no admission upstairs, all business transacted at the office. I hadn't any business to transact, so skipped upstairs and found the factory, large, well-lighted, and heated by steam. It seemed as clean as such a place well could be, Apparently, about 75 girls were employed, some sewing different sorts of sacks, some clipping the sacks apart as they came from the machine, others standing at the folding machines where the sacks were turned after sewing. The girls who worked at these folding machines were obliged to stand all day, and it seemed to be wearisome work. The girls were dressed with the same regard to convenience rather than style, which was noted at the other factory. The dust was not as bad in this place, except where the burlap sacks were handled. Several girls had severe coughs. Dressed in shabby, unassuming clothes, Eva would either sneak into a business in disguise, or she would apply and fabricate her references. It was vital that she experience the worker's world unvarnished. The first place she enters is the one that actually brings her to fame. The shop she enters is called Shotwell Clarehue and Lofman. Um, there's probably about 300 women employed. The only men who are employed are not doing garment manufacture. And those male workers tend to be supervisors or clerks. But they are seen to be of relatively privileged position within that workplace. And the dude clerks and the supervisor Um, are not the friends of women. If your foreman insults you, why don't you complain to the proprietors? What's the use? If we don't want to put up with the way we're treated, we are told we can leave. They can find plenty, glad to get a chance to work for any wages. 
In addition to the risks women workers faced by low wages, dangerous working conditions, and abusive male workers, Eva took on even more risks by going undercover. Not only was it risky as an individual, but it also put the integrity of the newspaper on the line. Being exposed was a big risk, I think we'd have to say that. Because if you think about it, what you're doing is quite illegal. I mean, you're, you're perpetrating a fraud. You're um, taking up a place of someone who might really need it. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to get yourself quashed legally. And I imagine a good editor anywhere else would have taken those kinds of precautions. Eva was taking these risks to humanize and empower the workers. So after she gets done with doing the column on women garment workers, she starts to go off and have other adventures. But in the midst of it, she winds up uh, being drawn into and being drawn back to the Shotwell Clarehue and Lothman factory, which has gone out on strike. Tensions in the factory had finally broken. Eva returned to find out more, referring to the women as striking maidens in her subsequent column from April 29, 1888. Here's Dr. Fow. It's very clear that things have, have been changing in the factory. Um, they could sing before, now they can't sing. They have a new uh, foreman who's very hard on them, who physically threatens them, who verbally abuses them, but also made a drastic wage cut. Eva and the workers went straight to the Knights of Labor Hall to hold their first meeting. They formulated demands for better wages and conditions, and they discussed strategies for moving forward. I had never seen a meeting of working girls before, my acquaintance being a confined to the workshop. I was wondering if there wouldn't be the amount of confusion and sharp retort, which is always credited to women's meetings when they have no masculine hand at the helm to keep order. There was, however, good order, but the girls were more willing and eager to talk than I have found them in my visits to their factories. What is a boycott, I asked. The girls laughed. Well, Eva, you are a bright one not to know that, they said. When the last subsided, one said, you see the trade of Shotwell, Clarehue, and Lofman is heavy in the city. Now, the goods they handle are those worn by the laboring classes. We can, by the united aid of organized labor, make those goods so unpopular that there would be no sale for them. The strike was on for a few weeks, but had unintended consequences, and ultimately the company went bankrupt. The women were left without pay and without work. Eva kept up the column until about 1890, in a series from 1889, she is fired from her position as a lady's maid when she failed to keep her mistress's afternoon opium party a secret from a pug dog and a prudish aunt. February 24th, 1889, and so she flunked. I feel melancholy too. Miss Clara wouldn't listen to my excuses and has discharged me. She will be chaperoned by her aunt in future. Again... I must seek a new field of activity. My occupation is gone. Eva Gay tried other kinds of work as a cashier, a clerk, bookbinder. She worked in hotels and resorts. She tried the latest fads. But eventually, she moved towards general reporting before getting married and leaving the globe altogether. She kept writing, kept championing working women. Labor stayed her focus, but she never returned to her investigative roots. Brooke Kroger charts the demise of the stunt girl reporter fad after just a few years. Was it good for women in journalism? 
uh, for a while and for a few, because it took a certain kind of woman who could do this, it was a form that very quickly lost its appeal. So we have it happening from 1887 till about like really petering out in the early 1890s. And just from overexposure, from too often use, like how many things can you come up with? Eva Valesh might not have originated her method of undercover investigation, but she certainly made the most she could of it by trying to help others while it lasted. Since the 1970s, undercover reporting has carried a stigma. If you look through the records of the Pulitzer Prizes, up until the mid-1970s, there are repeated prizes, especially in local specialized investigative reporting. It used to be a category. Looking at voting patterns or looking at hospitals or looking at abortion clinics. For newspapers facing declines in readership, undercover investigation was the public sacrifice for a newspaper industry set on earning the trust of its readers. Again, Brooke Kroger. It involves some questionable techniques, which of course, undercover reporting always does. You know it's something that puts a knot in your stomach because it isn't entirely above board. And yet, it achieves at its best some remarkable and fantastic effects. In this excerpt from April 22, 1888, Eva Gay's Travels, Eva succinctly appealed to her readers with a simple admonition to businesses that she investigated. The strike at the overall factory this week has shown the public that my statements in that case were not only true, but many other facts could have been told. It is about the same in regard to Langley and Johnson and many other firms that feel aggrieved. Let them treat their employees fairly and justly. There will then be no work for me to do. In a short time, Eva brought much attention to conditions of working women in the Twin Cities. She gave a voice to the disempowered, but even more importantly, she listened. She, she lives so outside the boundaries of her time, so counter to what women were supposed to do. She doesn't see that there's a big divide between being a labor intellectual, a journalist, and being an organizer and an advocate. That there's, for her, these are missions that are combined. As it came time to go home, one of the girls said to me, Now you will get caught. Why? I asked. Because the overseer stands at the door to see that the girls don't carry the factory home. So you will get your notebook looked over. I watched my opportunity, and while he was examining some of the bundles, slid past and joyfully made my escape. Eva Gay. For KFAI, I'm Ben Heath. Special thanks to Lindsay Fenner for reading the parts of Eva Valesh. Dr. Elizabeth Fowle is the author of Writing the Wrongs, Eva Valesh and the Rise of Labor Journalism. Brooke Kroger's latest book, Undaunted, How Women Changed American Journalism, comes out in May 2023. Music in today's episode is by Alice J. Shaw, remastered by Canary Records. Support for Mini Culture on KFAI has been provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Season 7 of the Mini Culture Podcast is edited and executive produced by Julie Sensulo. New episodes coming soon, so subscribe to Mini Culture wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, John Gibertatios, and thanks for listening.